A Life Redeemed by Joe LeMay. This book is copyrighted in 2015 by Joe LeMay. It is read by the author. Dedication To my children, Lindsay, Justin, Michael, Matthew, Hannah, and Caleb. To my wife, Sonia, my best friend and love of my life, not to mention my editor. To Sovereign Grace Fellowship, it is my pleasure to serve you. Prologue Why this spiritual memoir? Back in the spring of 2007, while sitting in my beach chair in left center field while watching an El Segundo High School baseball game, all of a sudden the thought struck me that I should write a brief account of the most significant experiences of my life that have shaped me to be spiritually the person that I am and to preach and pastor the way that I do. I quickly scribbled down an outline of the previous 26 years of my life. The following book is the filling in of that outline. Why this spiritual memoir? First, it is for my children and not yet born grandchildren. I have come to realize that most people at the funeral of their parents or grandparents can relate very little concerning the events that have shaped the internal world of who they really were. One reason is that they never told it or wrote it. My children are to know the truth that their dad was not born a Christian. No one is. Second, it is for my church. They hear me preach, but there are spiritual, relational, and theological experiences that are like a huge iceberg underneath the surface of my life that lead me to preach. What I preach and the way I do it. Here are those icebergs. Third, it is for anyone who may find help in the grace of God by reading it. Disclaimer, this is not a full-blown autobiography. It is not about the life and times of Joe LeMay. It is not about the most precious earthly treasure I have, my wife. That is another story that ought to be written. It is not about the beloved lives that have been intrinsic to my life, my six children. What is it then? Let me put it this way. When I begin each sermon with, please turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3 verses 1 through 9, or some other passage, and then I read it out loud, I am implicitly saying, dear congregation, judge me. Judge the next 50 to 60 minutes by whether I actually unfold the meaning and application of what is written here in the text. There are experiences and events that have molded me to preach that way. The story that follows is those life-changing experiences. I have attempted to keep it brief and narrowly focus on the mountain peak events that have led me to be the expository preaching pastor that I am. So I have laid out in the following eight chapters my interpretation of God's sovereign interventions in my life that have culminated in a deep conviction concerning the inerrancy and the sufficiency of Scripture and of the importance of dealing with the Bible carefully. This conviction has driven me to the conclusion that even if the Bible seems to say something that does not agree with my preconceived ideas, then I am wrong. And that text is true and worthy of being preached.
My story is not just an intellectual journey, because there is no such thing as a person being a purely intellectual being. There are life experiences that go deep down into our emotions and affect how we relate to others around us and how we perceive the world. We are flesh and blood, with passions and desires and longings. We feel things deeply and desire things strongly. Our minds and our hearts are intricately interwoven, forming each other. My goal in this memoir is to take you into my inner thought and feeling world, because that is who a person really is. I am still broken. I am profoundly ungifted in many areas. But I am saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, and presently I still have the privilege of delving into the Word of God for 25 hours a week in order to say on Sunday mornings, please turn in your Bibles to such and such a text and judge what I say by what is written. Joe LeMay, March 2015 Chapter 1 Coming to Jesus I was raised as the sixth child of seven in a Roman Catholic family. The smell of my dad's cologne meant it was Sunday morning and time for church. Though my parents raised us as a religiously observant family, by the time of my senior year in high school, none of my older siblings was attending Mass anymore. Being raised in the culture of my Catholic family meant that, throughout my childhood, I assumed the existence of God and that Jesus Christ was God who became a human being in order to die for sinners. I believe that He was the one and only Savior of the world. After all, that is what I was taught. That was my culture. I went to church, I took communion, I made acts of contrition, at least in word, because I did not have any idea what the term meant when I entered the confessional booth as a kid. I thought it was all one word, act of contrition. Yet... I was not a Christian. Of course, I did not know I was unsaved. Most of us don't know we are unsaved until our eyes are opened by the miracle of new birth and we awaken as believers who have a personal, intimate faith in Jesus Christ. One thing is for sure, I loved to sin. My life was a pursuit of the natural desires of my flesh. I grew up with three great passions, playing baseball, being a Notre Dame football fan, and living to party. The only thing that kept me from smoking dope on any particular day was a baseball practice or game later that afternoon or evening. Only my desire to perform and excel on the field superseded my desire to get stoned or drunk during most of my high school years. There I was sitting in my car overlooking the Pacific Ocean listening to Led Zeppelin drinking vodka and smoking hash in my homemade pipe. Life was good, and ignorance was bliss. Little did I know that my world would be turned upside down one year later. The latter part of my teenage years was described by the music of my generation and from one of my favorite bands, Pink Floyd. So, so you think you can tell heaven from hell? Blue skies from pain? Can you tell a green field from a cold steel rail? A smile from a veil? Do you think you can tell? 
And did you exchange a walk-on part in the war for a lead role in a cage? How I wish, how I wish you were here. We're just two lost souls swimming in a fishbowl year after year, running over the same old ground. What have you found? The same old fears. Wish you were here. By the fall of 1980, emptiness and the same old fears were becoming the air I breathed. I fell into my first bout with a sense of profound meaninglessness and mild depression which only marijuana soothed, temporarily. I was a hollow, barren, lost soul trying to numb the pain of reality with that which could never truly satisfy. But the closet of artificial peace was more bearable than the pain and fear of purposelessness. Hundreds of years ago, the great mathematician Blaise Pascal pinpointed the one main problem of my life when he wrote, quote, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end or goal. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. End quote. I, like everybody else, was seeking happiness, or, to say it in the negative, seeking the absence of pain. Then in January of 1981, at the age of 19, I began to develop an insatiable desire to read the Bible. Up to this point in my life, I had never had anyone share the gospel with me nor speak about a personal conversion experience. I know there must have been some Jesus freaks in my high school, but I didn't know any. So I had no category for a biblical understanding of a personal, saving relationship with Jesus Christ. I just found myself day after day picking up the family Bible that sat on the coffee table for years, but was never opened except to record baptisms, confirmations, and marriages. Knowing nothing about the Bible, I roamed around in what I think was Genesis, until I found the red letters in one of the Gospels and realized they represented Christ's sayings. I was captivated by the self-authenticating words of Jesus. Then I was overcome by the culmination of his purpose in life, which was to die in the place of sinners in order to bring total and everlasting forgiveness to them. During those days, I felt as if I were the only person in the world who was obsessed with Jesus and his death on the cross. I was utterly convinced that somehow he was the answer to everything. If someone were spying on me as I sat there on the living room couch reading the Bible, they would have witnessed a calm silence, not knowing that inside of me there was a hurricane blowing. The wind of the Spirit was saying, This is true. This is the answer of the turmoil that you've been going through over the last six months. This is the answer to the problem of existence as a finite, sinful, death-doomed 19-year-old kid. While reading one of the Gospels in the course of those early weeks of 1981, I walked into the kitchen and said to my mom, Why didn't you ever tell me about Jesus? I now realize that that was not a statement about my mom. 
but it was the fruit of seeing the reality of Jesus Christ with the eyes of my heart. The wind blew through my heart, as Jesus said. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. John 3.8 I was coming to grips with what Pascal went on to say. There once was in man a true happiness of which now remains to him only the empty trace, which he in vain tries to fill from his surroundings, seeking from things absent the help he does not obtain in things present. But these are all inadequate, because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and unchangeable object, that is to say, only by God himself. In other words, inside each of us is a God-shaped vacuum. We all come into this world with a longing for joy and meaning and significance that cannot be satisfied by anything other than the presence of God Himself. I was still a pot-smoking drunk, but something had changed. What was different was that I had a deep affection for Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross 2,000 years ago. It felt that true happiness may actually be attainable, that the person of Jesus may be the one true object that fits this gaping hole inside of me. This new hunger led me to enroll in a course about the New Testament at Santa Monica Community College. The class consisted mainly of middle-aged people along with this 19-year-old kid, all of whom were searching for answers. So there I was, on a Wednesday evening, sitting in my car in the college parking lot, smoking a joint as I guzzled another beer. But that did not keep me from looking forward to this three-hour course on the New Testament once a week. During this time, I had no paradigm that said smoking pot or getting drunk was incongruent with reading the Bible and hoping it was true. I was the same guy, hanging out with the same friends, going to the same parties, buying the same quarter ounce of marijuana a week, and getting drunk on a daily basis. It's just that now I was blown away with a deep sense that Jesus' death and resurrection was the essence of the meaning of life. I would even say to friends while getting high with him, Hey, have you ever read the Bible? This Jesus stuff just blows me away. You've got to read it. Up to this time in my life, late winter to early spring of 1981, I had never taken any hallucinogenic drugs because they frightened the heck out of me. But one evening in March, my marijuana supplier was out of my stuff. But he told me he had some killer hallucinogenic mushrooms. He finally talked me into trying them. Two hours later, I had an experience like I had never had before. It was really enjoyable. And since I woke up the next morning with everything back to normal, it was not to be feared as I once thought. I couldn't wait for the next experience. So over the next two months, usually with friends, I dropped acid or ate mushrooms on at least ten different occasions. Then... I experienced a life-altering nightmare.
One night, while frying on mushrooms with two friends, an irrational and overwhelming fear began to grip me. The thought that I was on the verge of experiencing what was known in the drug culture as a bad trip, it intensified the mental turmoil all the more. As I was on the precipice of losing all sense of reality, my two buddies deserted me out of fear of catching the same panic that was overtaking me. So there I was, standing in the middle of the street on Poinsettia Avenue in Manhattan Beach, California. Some names and places make their indelible mark on our memories. I was fully conscious, and yet I was convinced that I had died. My body was lying in some emergency room. My parents were devastated, and I was in hell. Though it looked exactly like the trees and houses on Poinsettia Avenue. It is virtually impossible to relate this terror to people who have not had a similar experience. I do not know how long it went on that night, and I do not remember getting home. I found out a few days later that my friend drove me home in my car. When I woke up the next morning, it was as if I knew my life had changed forever. It was not like waking up from an extreme night of alcohol intoxication. It felt like, even though I had come down from the effects of the mushrooms, that I would never really move on from that experience. And the terror of that night then made me apprehensive to smoke marijuana for fear that it would thrust me back into the same horrifying experiences. Over the next few weeks, I would wake up each morning feeling like the night of my bad trip was inches away from leaping on me again. I found myself desperately holding onto some semblance of a normal mental state. After two weeks of no pot smoking, the longest stretch in five years, I headed over to my friend's house three blocks away to find that one of my high school baseball teammates was in town because he had been suspended by the New York Yankees minor league team for too much partying and curfew breaking. As George and I sat there in the living room talking, he began to roll a joint. Eighty percent of me was saying, Don't you dare take a hit, Joe. The other twenty percent was salivating as he reached out with the understood gesture. It's your turn. I cautiously reached for the beautiful smelling weed and took it deep down into my lungs again and again over the next few minutes. And then suddenly, BAM! I was right back to where I was the night of my bad trip. The terror of this gripped me so much that I said to myself that I needed to get into my car and to drive the three blocks to my house immediately or I would never get home. That day, which commenced five months of flashbacks, made the night of my bad trip seem like a walk in the park. I was now mentally and emotionally stranded on an island by myself. I was a caged and fearful young man who was losing his grip on reality. Every day, I would be overpowered by foreign thoughts that were trying to convince me that Jesus is not God who became human in order to die and be raised from the dead for sinners like me. This was tormenting because deep down I knew that nothing made ultimate sense. 
And there was no hope outside of the good news of Jesus Christ being resurrected from the dead. During the late spring and summer of 1981, I was in a constant battle to keep myself busy so that I would not have idle time just to think and be drawn away by tormenting thoughts from unseen demonic forces. One day, I stopped by the baseball field where I played just one year earlier, and I was not able to concentrate on the game because I was overwhelmed with a sense that my life is over. I'm losing my ability to control my mind. I will never be stable enough to marry and to raise a family. I'm just waiting to die. The one medication I was still on during that lost and fearful summer was alcohol. The fear of what marijuana would do to me weaned me from its use, but vodka and beer calmed me and brought me into daily relief. I was living in a bubble of my own fear in flashbacks. It was my own little secret that I didn't know how to communicate to anyone else. The desperateness that I felt at that time led me to knock on the rectory door of my local parish, St. Anthony's in El Segundo, in order to get the priest to bless the cross that hung around my neck. At the same time, I started going back to Mass on Sunday mornings. I would sit in the front row and listen intently during service for the first time in my life. I was hungry to hear any morsel of biblical truth about Jesus. My desperation became so intense, it drove me to attend weekday masses where I would light candles and pray for myself. I also enrolled in an adult catechism class at my parish. I was hungry for real answers. But outside of mass, and, I realize now, an inept catechism teacher, I had nothing to compare it to. I was like a kid from a third-world country who was thrilled to get a tasteless bowl of rice and a cup of water because he does not know what is meant by a burger with fries and a chocolate shake. On my 20th birthday, September 5th, 1981, after a day of drinking a couple six-packs of Budweiser while listening to rock and roll and painting my parents' house, a 42-year-old next-door neighbor Eamon Trainer came over to shoot the breeze. He said he wanted to talk about Christianity. It scared me because I thought he was going to try to convince me that Jesus and all that stuff was just a farce. His main message ended up being about the phenomenon of speaking in tongues. I had no idea what he was talking about, but at least I knew that he was on the side of Jesus. What a relief! He went on to tell me about his brother Angelo, who was now a believer in Jesus. Growing up, Angelo had been a close family friend. This was the guy who was also raised in the Roman Catholic Church, but became a proclaimed atheist by age 11. He had become an alcoholic, a drug addict, and had been deeply involved in the occult. He ended up in a drug program, and now he loves Jesus? This blew my mind. The last person on earth I thought would ever be a Bible-reading, church-going lover of Jesus was Angelo Trainer. But now, 
He believed that a first century traveling preacher was the one predicted in the Hebrew Scriptures. And more than that, he was also convinced that Jesus died for his sins and was physically raised from the dead. He had my attention. Six weeks later came the most pivotal day of my life. On Sunday, October 18th, 1981, while enjoying a few beers and watching a football game on TV, Eamon called me on the phone and asked if I would like to attend the Sunday night service with Angelo and him. I said, yes. After that night, my life was forever changed. As the service began and the forty or so people stood to lift their hands and sing with all their hearts, I was overcome with a deep hope that maybe there really were people in the world who were as desperate for deliverance as I was. It's hard to express how exhilarating it was to be in that atmosphere of deep, heartfelt worship. Of course, I didn't know what to call it at the time. Having been raised in the Roman Catholic Church, I was stunned at a 60-minute sermon, which felt like three minutes. I can't remember the content of the message, but I do know I was encountered by God in a powerful way. At the end of the service, I was inwardly compelled to respond to the altar call. Two pastors laid their hands on me and prayed. There was no drug-induced experience that could come close to the overwhelming, intoxicating encounter I had with the Spirit of God that night. I left the church grounds in childlike wonder, hoping that if all of this was a dream, it would never end and I wouldn't wake up. Not only did I wake up the next morning and the next, realizing that it was not a dream, but I had made contact with other crazy or sane people who believe that Jesus Christ is the one true God who became human in order to die for hopeless sinners like me. My life was now on a radically different path from which there was no looking back. Meaning and purpose for my life were becoming real. I bought my first Bible. It was the most valuable possession I owned. I devoured its pages like a starving man at a banquet. I would show up every week to Sunday morning and Sunday and Thursday evening services at this little church on Prairie Boulevard in Torrance, California. The thrill of sitting in Roger and Joan's home on Wednesday nights discussing the Bible gives me chills 33 years later. This was more happiness producing than any drug I had ever tried. This little community of people would become my church family for the next ten years. During these first few months of being in a real Christ-centered community, my love for Jesus and His sacrificial death on the cross revolutionized my life and hope. Through teaching, hanging out with other believers, and feeding on the Bible day in and day out, my mind was being renewed to the truth. The effect of this was that I was slowly gaining control of the horrid panic attacks and flashbacks. And yet, there were still times when I would lie in bed at night and suddenly sense the creeping up of another flashback. Then, in late November of 1981, 
At a Thursday night church service, a visiting preacher named Dick Mills was the guest speaker. One of the things he was known for was pointing people out in the congregation and speaking to them what came to his mind, usually with a few scripture quotations. At this time, I had never spoken to a soul about the paralyzing, lonely fear of flashbacks that I had been experiencing over the previous seven months. Dick Mills asked me to stand up. In trepidation, I did. He proceeded to quote a few verses having to do with leaving the past behind. And then he, or should I say a loving Heavenly Father, stunned me by saying, No more flashbacks for Joe! Then he had the 120 or so people who were there say in unison, No more flashbacks for Joe! No more flashbacks for Joe! No more flashbacks for Joe! I slumped into my seat, overwhelmed with the tender love and care of God the Father, because this was the one tormenting secret I thought I had to bear all alone. But to realize that God used that gift of the Spirit through some guy who didn't know me from a hole in the wall in order to let me know that he understood everything that I had been going through and that he would totally deliver me from this mental torment overwhelmed me with his personal care and love. My hope intensified all the more, and my love for God the Father who adopted me through Jesus Christ was more real than I ever imagined it could be. The clarity of what I read in the Bible was vivid and self-authenticating to me. I had to be the happiest 20-year-old kid on earth. All my marbles were banked on the message of Jesus Christ. I had, by the grace of God, come to believe with all my heart that He alone is the Savior of lost sinners. It was He who, as the eternal Son of God, became a human being in order to be my sacrifice and take upon Himself the just wrath of God against my sin. It was Jesus alone who lived the perfect, sinless life in order that His righteousness before God would be put to the account of a wretched, God-belittling Joe LeMay. Jesus was the most authentic man of all time. He was brutally tortured on a Roman cross, killed, truly dead, cold, and hardened. And then on the third day, He was physically raised to new bodily life forevermore. The words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, describe what happened to me perfectly. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all especially Joe LeMay, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. 
by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Chapter 2, The Early Years It was Sunday, 4.30 a.m. I leaned over to shut off my alarm clock, placed my feet on the floor, jumped into the shower, got dressed in warm clothes, drove to 7-Eleven, purchased my 32-ounce big gulp of caffeine-loaded Coca-Cola, and hurried home so I wouldn't miss my first of three television sermons. This would leave me with enough time to dress and get to church an hour and a half early so that I could hop the schoolyard fence next door, walk around and pray in tongues, sing and commune with God. This hour ritual prepared my heart for the grace of the Sunday morning worship service. That was my weekly routine for the next three years. The thrill of being with my local church family, singing songs of salvation, Hearing the preached word and hanging out with these Jesus-loving people was the greatest day of my week. As I prepared for my baptism, one passage of Scripture stood out to me in my expectation of this monumental moment. So on that February afternoon in 1982, as I stood in the tank of water, the one thing I had to say before I was dunked, was to quote 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Those words, you, Joe LeMay, were bought with a price. Therefore, you do not belong to yourself anymore, but to your Savior. They were sweet words to my soul. The idea that I was saved not only from my sin in hell, but from autonomy, from myself, and from the deception of independence was profoundly liberating to me. The declaration, you don't have to a right to do with your body whatever your desires dictate, whether that be sexually, what you watch, how you spend your time, what drugs or alcohol you put into it. That was freedom to me, not bondage. As my old self was being buried in the water in order to be brought back up to new life in Christ, I was overcome with the reality that I had been purchased to live in the freedom and the power of God's grace. In the early months of my new life in Christ, I had just turned 20 years old, and I could barely read. I graduated high school 221st out of 228 students with a 1.6 grade point average. The only reason I ended up graduating was because the athletic director pulled some strings to get me academically eligible for the state baseball playoffs. Keeping me eligible involved giving me credits to graduate. From kindergarten through 12th grade, I don't remember ever reading a book from cover to cover except for Dr. Seuss. The only regular reading I did was the daily sports page. 
in high school and in community college, when I would try to read textbooks on history or psychology or science, I would get nowhere. After an hour of reading the words on the pages slowly, I would realize I had no idea what I'd just read. So I would give up. But now, I was born again. I was hungry to devour the Bible. It was through the persistent reading of the Scriptures that my ability to comprehend what I was reading grew by leaps and bounds. It is amazing how desire is the fuel to learning. My new life in Christ produced in me structure, joyful discipline. The daily excitement of waking up as a Christian was the driving force that directed how I lived, what I desired, and how I pursued it. For example, from Monday through Friday, the alarm would go off at 5 a.m. I would pop out of bed and be ready for work with an hour to spare for Bible reading and prayer. I would make sure that my bag was packed with at least six to eight hours of preaching and teaching audio tapes. I would average listening to at least 30 hours of preaching and teaching each week while I earned a living. In those early years, I would only take jobs that would allow me to wear headphones in order to absorb Scripture all day long. As soon as I would get home from work, I would immediately go to bed and nap because I knew that I wouldn't be able to read and study productively if I were too exhausted. I would wake up by 5 p.m., eat dinner, and spend the rest of the evening in my room reading the Bible and related books. Of course, that was on the nights when there was no church service or home group. The idea of missing the regular gathering with fellow members of my church around the Word never crossed my mind. Not because it was a duty, but because it was my joy. It was during the first few months of my Christian life that I felt a calling to devote my life to teaching and preaching the Word of God. One afternoon, while listening to a sermon in my living room, I was stunned with the overwhelming sense that this is what I would be doing one day. Up to that point, it never crossed my mind that I would be in the preaching or pastoral ministry. Since that afternoon, the sense that I was meant to take the word and proclaim it with passion has never left me. From that day on, I have had the burning desire to pursue the truth of the scriptures and to preach it to others. No other pursuit in life interested me. I didn't know what to do about it. It was just there, growing in me. At the time, I didn't think this was a special calling to the ministry of the word. It just seemed like, well, of course. This is how all Christians should feel. What else is there to aspire to in this life but to spend your time in the Word, studying, teaching, and preaching? The idea of some other vocation seemed utterly distasteful to me. It seemed obvious that the next step was to take it to the streets. As I got more and more acclimated to church life, it began to baffle me how so many believers seemed to not care about sharing this wonderful eternal salvation from hell with lost and dying sinners. My drastic change was so stark and joyful that I told every soul I ran into about the Savior Jesus. I must have blown away a lot of people. Some would flee as I shared the gospel. Others were more inquisitive. Some of my friends came to the Lord. 
This passion to share the gospel led me to start up a street evangelism team at my church in 1982. Every Saturday morning, we would meet at the church in order to pray for the souls we would meet that day. Then we would either go to Redondo Beach Pier or to a nursing home to share the gospel and pray for people. This is how I spent the entirety of my Saturdays for the next three years. The Good and the Bad of the Early Years of My Christianity The Good The good came out of those early years was that I devoured the Bible and developed a deep affection for God expressed through worship, singing, and evangelism. I also had a couple of close friends with whom I experienced Christian fellowship. I read the scriptures when I woke up. I read them throughout the day from my pocket New Testament. I would sit in my room at night and read the entirety of Romans in one sitting. Then the next night, 1 Corinthians. At lunch break, I would sit in my car and read the Epistle of Paul to the Ephesians from beginning to end. I read through the Bible in those years, but I had a particular attraction to the epistles. I probably read through all of the New Testament letters at least 30 times in the first three years. One of my special joys was getting together with a couple of close brothers to pray and read the Bible out loud to each other while grilling steaks in the Malibu Mountains. It is one thing to have been plucked from the fires of hell to worship God through Jesus Christ. It is another thing to grab the hand of a close friend and adore God together. The Bad The bad of these first three years was the particular camp of Christianity I found myself engulfed in. Not the people who were and are precious to me, but the theology. As a hungry newborn, my mouth was open wide to be fed by the mother bird of my Christian leaders. The problem was that the food was the teachings of the Word of Faith movement. It was the preaching of the mainline international leaders of this sect that I was listening to for 30 hours a week. I would take one of my two weeks of vacation a year to rent a motel room and go to every session of the week-long Believer's Voice of Victory Conference in Anaheim, California. At this and other conferences, all my preaching heroes were speakers. Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagen, Norval Hayes, Charles Capps, Jerry Seville, and Fred Price. I must have spent over $2,000 in teaching cassettes in the early 1980s that were filled with Word of Faith doctrine. According to these teachers, God visualized the possibility of what could be. Then He released the force of faith through the spoken Word, and this world came into existence. At the pinnacle of that creation was mankind created to be little g, God's. Here are the direct words of Kenneth Copeland. God's reason for creating Adam was his desire to reproduce himself. I mean a reproduction of himself. And in the Garden of Eden, he did just that. He was not a little like God. He was not almost like God. He was not subordinate to God even. Adam is as much like God as you could get. Just the same as Jesus. 
Adam was God manifested in the flesh. According to many Word of Faith teachers, Adam had so much power that God could not do anything in the earth without getting permission from human beings. As I would watch Fred Price every Sunday morning on his ever-increasing faith television broadcast, he would say things like, and I quote, God can't do anything in this earth realm except what we, the body of Christ, allow Him to do. End quote. In this system of theology, the story goes something like this. God made mankind as little gods on the earth with complete authority over it. Then Satan sneaked in and deceived them. As a result, Adam legally handed over his authority to the devil, and he became the god of this world. Satan now had legal rights to the earth, and God was left outside, wringing his hands, looking desperately for a way to get back in. Kenneth Copeland put it this way, God had no avenue of moving in the earth. He had to have covenant with somebody. He had to be invited in or he couldn't come. God is on the outside looking in. In order to have any say-so in the earth, God is going to have to be in agreement with a man living on earth. End quote. This doctrine goes on to teach that after thousands of years, God finally found a man who would allow God back into the earth. He made a covenant with this man, Abraham, and by that covenant he began his journey of regaining the world through his positive confession of the coming Messiah, the second Adam. When Jesus finally came, he modeled how to tap into the force of faith and speak things into existence. His ministry was all about training his disciples how to master the skill of positive confession so that they too could enjoy a life of health and wealth. Then Jesus went to the cross in order to trick the devil, to get this world back and return humanity to their original state as little gods with the power to create their own reality. To do this, he would have to not only die physically, but spiritually as well. It was on the cross where the sinless Christ was transformed into a sinner, died spiritually to God, and descended into hell where he was tortured by Satan and demons as they laughed at him. But there was a catch. Satan didn't account for the fact that Jesus never sinned. So the devil's dragging him into hell was illegal. Satan, like Adam, was deceived and lost his authority over this world. So there, in the depths of hell, Jesus was born again spiritually and whipped the devil and his buddies. He snatched the keys from Satan's hands, burst out of hell, and was raised physically from the dead. As my favorite teacher in those days put it, Jesus was literally being reborn before the devil's very eyes. He began to flex his spiritual muscles. Jesus was born again, the firstborn from the dead, and he whipped the devil in his own backyard. Kenneth Copeland As a result, 
all believers are born again like Jesus. And with this new spiritual life, they have the promise of unlimited health and wealth. Whether one experiences healing in their bodies or riches in their bank accounts depends on their tapping into the power of faith. If one can really believe it and confess it consistently enough, then he or she can call it into being. After all, that is how God and Jesus do it. Part of the system is to avoid negative confessions. If you begin to have body chills or are vomiting, don't say, I'm sick, because that negative confession will come about as a result of your words. Words are the containers that hold the power to create what they call for. God's will is that all Christians live in financial wealth and never get sick. It is each person's weak faith expressed through their words that hinders the manifestation of health and wealth. Like many persons whom God has sovereignly called to faith in Jesus, I found myself swimming in this sect of Christianity that was teaching crazy, unbiblical, and dangerous doctrines. As a whole, it was a system that emphasized not faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it emphasized faith in the unseen power of faith. It stressed that Christianity was about using God as a means to the end of health and money. A Narrow Christian Worldview In my early years as a Christian, I believed in one of the biggest closed-minded deceptions within the church today. It goes something like this. In the first century, the apostles had it right. Then, from about A.D. 100 to the Azusa Street Revival of 1906, when Pentecostalism was born, not much of substance happened within the church world. It was as if the work of the Holy Spirit was mostly inoperative for the good part of 1,800 years, until the revival of speaking in tongues and an enthusiastic belief in present-day healing of the physical body. Most of my early teachers were profoundly ignorant of church history. They asserted that the last days have dawned with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which they called the baptism in the Spirit. Evidenced by speaking in tongues, they were in essence erroneously saying, with this new revival of biblical Christianity at the dawn of the 20th century, God is undoing all of the dead orthodoxy that developed over the centuries and that somehow missed the core meaning of the Christian life of faith. Summary God's reaching down and regenerating me to new life in Jesus Christ produced an immediate and radical change from my old, depraved way of life. For the first three and a half years of my Christianity, I read the Bible incessantly, and I listened to an average of 30 hours of teaching a week. I had a new, profound passion for learning, praying, and worshiping. I could quote chapters from Paul's epistles, not because I tried to memorize them, but because I read them and meditated on them constantly. It felt like I had it all together. Discipline, structure, street ministry, a head full of Bible, and a pretty good answer to most people who asked for my input.
I was happy, focused, and driven to serve Christ. Chapter 3 My World Crumbles After a few years of everything going smoothly, the wheels began to come off in a big way. Flash forward to the middle of 1985. I had quit street evangelism. I had quit waking up early to pray, and praying at all, on purpose. I had quit reading the Bible or any Christian books. I was devastated, angry at God, and I only prayed when I cried because sitting alone in my apartment sobbing scared me enough to plead with him that I not lose my mind or forsake him altogether. The good things that God had worked in my life over the first three years of my Christianity were valuable and are still bearing fruit in my life to this day. But looking back on what transpired next, it was as if God in His providence was saying, Okay, my son, now that you have grown in these areas of your life, it's time to work on another aspect of your person. It's time to develop emotionally and to learn how to be vulnerable in interpersonal relationships. The sledgehammer that the Lord used to crack open the emotional shell of my life was the pain of breaking up with the only steady girlfriend I had had in my life up to that point. The only other girlfriend I had subsequent to this one became my wife. Before I came to Christ, I had only kissed three girls. The first was two months short of my 19th birthday. As a Christian, the idea of playing the dating game made no sense to me. I knew that romantic love was a powerful force that should not be taken lightly. Since becoming a Christian, I had always had my eyes open to the opposite sex, but with the thought, could she be the one who is to become my wife? If not, then there's no good reason to play with the dynamite of our sexual natures. After pursuing Christ passionately for a little over two years, a new family began to attend our church. I was 22, and one of the daughters of this family had just turned 19. Rather quickly, romance bloomed, and I had kissed my fourth girl over and over again. I found myself being wanted and enjoying the verbal expressions of affection we shared. Over the next twelve months of our relationship, I was becoming deeply conflicted. Here I was experiencing being in love. But I was logical enough to know that this relationship had to end up in one of two ways, either in marriage or in a painful breakup. The idea that I was mature or stable enough to be married anytime soon seemed ludicrous to me. However, being in love felt wonderful. I so wanted to honor Christ with my life, but ending this romantic relationship with all of its adrenaline-producing feelings seemed too painful to consider. Added to this was the growing awareness that if I were ready for marriage, this girl would not be a good choice. It was becoming more and more obvious that she, though raised in a Christian home, was not nearly as serious or passionate for Christ as I was. One of my main prayers since becoming a Christian was that if God had a wife for me, she would have to love Jesus more than I do, so that I wouldn't be pulled down in my walk with Christ. 
Finally, after much turmoil in our relationship and a few failed tries, we broke up for good. The Awakening It was February 1985. I was disillusioned and in pain. I had just moved out of my parents' home for the first time. While sitting alone in my apartment, crying, God dropped a bombshell on me that shattered my world as I knew it. The insight that hit me like a ton of bricks was that even though I was 23 years old, when it came to emotional development, I was a 12-year-old. That realization was frightening. Since becoming a Christian, I was always the guy who had it together. I was the one with the answers, not the problems. People came to me with their troubles. I offered advice. I knew who I was, what I believed, and what I thought. Now, I was as confused and lost as a man caught in a sandstorm in the middle of the Sahara Desert. I shut down. It was scary to be awakened to the truth that I was out of touch with who I was and what I felt. I was taught for three years that Christians are overcomers, that there was no reason for believers to have a bad day, and that suffering and pain were not the pathway for those who walked by faith. I had no category for what I was experiencing. My life was suddenly very different than what it had been during my first three years as a Christian. I used to wake up every morning and pray in tongues and worship God. Now, when I woke up, I knew God was right there with me. But I did not feel like worshiping and enjoying His presence. Instead, I felt angry toward Him because He let the lifestyle that I had such control over fall apart. Now, I would wake up think, feel, and cry. Other than the deity of Jesus, His atoning sacrifice, His bodily resurrection from the dead, and that there is no salvation without faith in Him. Other than that, my entire theological system was in doubt. Much of what I had built my life upon over the previous three and a half years was crumbling underneath me. I couldn't read the Bible anymore because of the theological glasses that were given to me. I had come to not assume that any of the theology I had been taught was accurate. I had become aware that one day I would need to start with a blank slate and read the Bible with no presuppositions. But at this time it was impossible. I knew I couldn't hear what the text of Scripture was saying because the voices of the Word of Faith teachers were screaming in my head. I knew their theology inside and out. It had asserted itself over every familiar text I knew, which happened to be most of the New Testament and much of the Old. I went to church on Sundays, but other than that, I had pulled out of the various ministries I had been involved in. My pain and anger led me to pout like a child who ignores mommy because he didn't get his way. I told God that I would never serve in ministry again. The only thing I wanted from God was to not go to hell when I die. That's the reason when in my tears and pain and anger 
I would cry out to the Father to protect my heart from turning away from such a great salvation. In these early months of 1985, my life went from a dynamic, Bible-saturated prayer and ministry life to waking up every day and being relieved I had a job, not because of the money I earned, but because it gave me something to do in order to preoccupy myself and get my mind off of my misery. In the fifth month of my devastation, I was on a church retreat at Arrowhead Springs Christian Conference Center in the San Bernardino Mountains in Southern California. As I sat alone on the roof of the hotel, I said for the first time, slowly, deliberately, audibly, and while crying, what the expletive happened to my life? Part of me was stunned, and part of me didn't care anymore. I was stunned because since becoming a Christian, I had learned to control my emotions and words so well that I had not used a profanity in years. And this was from a guy who used to have the dirtiest mouth of anyone in his high school. For three and a half years, I had meaning, I had direction, I had purpose, I had excitement about life in Christ each morning I awoke. Now, the sum of everything that I was feeling came out through my vocal cords with no one around but me and God. What the expletive happened to my life? The next morning, as I was sitting in one of the preaching services of the retreat, getting bored, something weird happened. All of a sudden, for no apparent reason, a portion of my life flashed before my mind. It was like one of those near-death experiences where people say their entire life flashed before them. This whole experience must have taken no more than three or four seconds. But in those moments... It was like watching a movie of five significant years of my life. And when it was over, I suddenly knew three things. One, that was the Holy Spirit. Two, I have no idea why He did it or what it means. And three, I will eventually know what it means. The part of my life that flashed before me had to do with Alan, who was my best friend until I was almost nine years old. We hit it off immediately. Alan and I did everything together. We lived next door to each other. We were the same age. We played with the same energy. Living 30 feet away from one another meant that we have probably spent more time together than we did with our own siblings. As we grew, we went to kindergarten first, second, and third grades together. Those formative years from age four to eight seemed like decades, as is normal for all of us at that age. Then, during the latter half of the second grade, Alan was diagnosed with bone cancer. We were the same old Alan and Joey as I wheeled him around the hospital hallways. I can vividly remember waiting in his living room with the rest of his family as he arrived home from his extended recuperation from his surgery and treatment. 
We all were amazed at how fast he could move on his crutches since one of his legs had been amputated up to the hip. Everything picked up where it left off before he lost his leg. Alan was the toughest kid I knew, so he would just have to learn how to ride the bike with one leg. I told him, just push down with your leg and pull up on the pedal with the top of your foot. Another year went by as my best friend and I played, argued, and loved each other. Then he went back into the hospital and never came home again. He was gone, just like that. Outside of my parents, he was the closest person in my life, and he just up and left. I never consciously knew how I dealt with it. At some point down the road, I stopped crying at night. As I worked through the meaning of this significant segment of my life and why God caused it to flash through my mind that day, I would contemplate from the outside looking in. What happened to that little eight-and-a-half-year-old Joey when one of his closest intimate childhood friends that he shared his whole life with just up and left, never to come home again? What happened in his heart? That was the question I began asking at the retreat. I was 23 years old, and I had just become aware that I was a 12-year-old emotionally. I was more closed up than I ever imagined. I was beginning to realize that since the loss of Alan, when it came to vulnerability with others, I would only go so deep or let the other person get so close because the pain of loving and feeling and caring hurt too much. After all, what if the next person I become vulnerable with just up and leaves like Alan did? It's too dangerous to risk it. Arm's length is safer. So I became callous from the fourth grade on. My subconscious philosophy was, no one will hurt me anymore. Later that night, as I sat atop a playground slide overlooking the city lights of San Bernardino 3,000 feet below, while crying, it became clear to me that I needed to start sharing all the pain and brokenness that was bottled up within me. It was the next day that I stepped out and started on my new adventure. It was scary at first. In fact, my heart was beating so hard that I thought it was going to pop out of my chest. But standing there, talking with a friend from church and sharing with her what I actually felt, pain, confusion, and all, was in a strange way profoundly liberating. I was now on a mission. It was a mission of seeking people out in order to share what I actually felt and thought deep down inside, without screening it. Some people have never had a problem with opening up and being vulnerable with others, so they don't know what it's like. But everyone has met people like this. They're almost impossible to get to really know because there's nothing of personal depth and substance that comes out of them. There's no sense that that person really reaches deep within their varying emotions and thoughts and shares them freely in appropriate settings. I was that person. Now I was on a journey of learning how to be in touch with my own feelings and thoughts and then being vulnerable as I shared them with others. Those who knew me before 1985 were stunned at such a drastic change in me. They must have been thinking, who is this guy? 
I remember the first home group after the retreat. The pastor's wife was so stunned that I spoke in the way that I did during group that she made me and my growth in opening up the topic of discussion for the rest of the meeting. Learning how to be a friend, listening to others, and taking the risk of sharing my own heart became the main emphasis and focus of my life for the rest of 1985. The old Joe would listen to people's problems, but I would only hear them on one level, how they related to biblical passages in my theological system. I was happy to give answers, but those who were more in tune with the substance of interpersonal relationships must have sensed how out of touch I was on a basic human level. The new Joe was this guy who did not have any preconceived answers to everyone's complex life situations. Now, maybe to an extreme, I was all about looking deep down inside of my heart and sharing with other human beings what was there, who I was and what I thought, whether it was right, wrong, or weird. I was being freed up from caring what others thought about me. If they accepted me, great. If they didn't, that was fine also. I was being liberated from being a people pleaser. Ground was being laid to be a truth teller, whether as an expository preacher or just a friend bearing his heart and thoughts. So over the next seven months, really many years, my main focus was on practicing the art of bearing my soul to others. It became easier and easier. And I also found the wonderful phenomenon that the more real and open I would be, the more comfortable others felt in opening up to me. Reuniting On October 13th of that year, for the first time in nine months, I woke up and prayed on purpose. The gist of what the Father impressed upon me was, I've been waiting. Because of those open arms of love for such a hard-hearted child like me who had the audacity to be angry at God, something happened to me that had never happened before or since that day. I paced back and forth in my living room, praying and crying for over an hour with happiness and wonder at the love of God for me. I mean sobbing uncontrollably. My pursuit of God began to slowly chug along again from that day forward. Chapter 4 Escape to Dallas A friend of mine had just returned from visiting the campus of Christ for the Nations Institute in Dallas, Texas otherwise known as CFNI. In late October of 1985, while I was eating alone at an Italian restaurant in Hermosa Beach, I absorbed the school catalog. Before leaving the restaurant, I knew I was going to do something that was way out of character for me. I was going to pack my bags and leave for Texas. There were two main reasons why I felt this is what I needed to do. First, I had to get away from my local church, its culture, and its theology. Second, 
It was to continue the intensity of growing in the art of building real relationships. I was not heading halfway across the country for academics. I was not hungry for a theological or biblical education, and I was aware that CFNI didn't provide this. The school was more like a large Christian commune of 1,500 students from all around the country and the world. Ninety-five percent of the students, which consisted of single men, single women, and married people with families, lived on this 86-acre campus. We worshipped, studied, ate, worked, and played together. I knew this would be the perfect setting to mature in interpersonal relationships. After all, it is either close up or grow up when you are thrown into a large dormitory of 400 single men and shoved into a 250-square-foot room with two other guys. So early on December 29, 1985, with my car packed, I headed down Interstate 40 to Texas. Over the next two years, my expectations were fulfilled. The intensity and depth of friendship with a few buddies was electrifying. These were some of the most intense and thrilling years of my life. Frustration, pain, confusion, relational strain, and all. CFNI was not a word of faith institution. It had a charismatic Pentecostal bent with people who approved of the word of faith doctrine and others who were ardently opposed to the teaching. The main emphasis was experiential with preeminence on worshiping the Lord in passionate song. As I sat in the Christian Center for a single men's sectional meeting during my first week on campus, I was blown away with wonder and joy that it was 10.30 a.m. on a Tuesday morning and I was in this environment instead of working a full-time job as I had been doing for the previous four years. It was not like a regular college or university in that all the students were on the same schedule. For example, Monday through Friday for me consisted of waking up at 6 a.m. to pray, read, go downstairs to the cafeteria to eat breakfast, walk across the street to punch in on time by 8 a.m. There were lots of strict rules and then some. Then we would filter into the main auditorium for 40 minutes of corporate worship with 1,500 other students and faculty. The sound and the atmosphere of our voices singing the praises of God was a daily healing balm to my soul. Then, with our hearts prepared in this way, we were off to our first class at 8.45 a.m. After break, we would go to our second class. Finally, the entire student body gathered in the main auditorium again at 11 a.m. in order to listen to the special speaker of the week from one of the seven sermons he or she would give from Sunday afternoon to Friday. At noon, school was out and the mad rush to the cafeteria line was on. The rest of the day was for napping, studying, working, playing basketball, volleyball, football, or working out in the gym. Often, it was for hanging out with fellow students and wrestling over life's issues. As a whole, my two years at CFNI were about the honesty, depth, and love that developed between me and a few friends. That was my major, and the Lord didn't disappoint. I still cried some. I daily felt my brokenness. Then I picked up a book titled, A Tale of Three Kings, 
A Study in Brokenness by Jean Edwards I was glued when I read in the prologue the words of the angel Gabriel speaking to the unborn King David about his earthly life that he was about to begin. I must tell you that what has been given you is a glorious thing, the only element in the universe known to God or angels that can change the human heart. Yet, even this very element of God cannot accomplish its task, nor can it grow and fill your entire inner being unless it be compounded well. It must be mixed lavishly with pain, sorrow, and crushing. All-night conversations Day-long sessions over the meaning of our lives and the depth of our brokenness have a way of bonding brothers and sisters together. It was truly an ongoing practice ground for my new journey of sharing deeply and listening intently with those who could reciprocate. But all this came with a price of intense personal struggles, a lot of pain, and much work. It was scary, exhilarating, and freeing to be vulnerable and to love again. That circle of friends will forever be etched into my affections. Keith, Chris, Paul, Shad, Mike, Michael, Christine, Sonia, Denise, Marco, and Todd. I feel like I could write a book on the roller coaster of life we shared. There would be chapters titled, Our Wrestling with God, or Communication Breakdown, Struggles with Love and Romance, Struggles with Sexuality, Disillusionment with All the Craziness of Our Churches Back Home, An Impatience with a Shallow Spirituality, which comes with the prospect of our own spiritual pride, just to name a few. One thing was for sure. I didn't want to go back into the better to have never drawn close and loved than to risk it and experience pain and grief shell that I had entered after Alan's death. Entrusting one's heart, feelings, and thoughts into another person's hands involves risk, which inevitably means a deeper life, deeper joy, and deeper pain. The opening words of chapter 5 in A Tale of Three Kings were hitting close to home. God has a university. It's a small school. Few enroll, even fewer graduate. Very, very few indeed. God has this school because He does not have broken men. Instead, He has several other types of men. He has men who claim to be God's authority and aren't. Men who claim to be broken and aren't, and men who are God's authority, but who are mad and unbroken. And he has, regretfully, a spectroscopic mixture of everything in between. All of these he has in abundance, but broken men? Hardly at all. In God's sacred school of submission and brokenness, why are there so few students? Because all who are in this school must suffer much pain. And, as you might guess, it is often the unbroken ruler 
whom God sovereignly picks, who meets out the pain. David was once a student in this school, and Saul was God's chosen way to crush David. That quote, and many like it, were helping me to have hope and to put into context the pain, confusion, and life-shattering experiences of the previous year and a half. By the spring of 1987, every person in my intimate circle was going through major upheaval in their lives. I was one semester behind all my friends, so they were weeks away from graduation and were faced with the next chapter of their lives. The drama, confusion, and pain were so deep and wreaking such havoc on my varying relationships that I was desperately yearning for the end of the term so that I could get out of Dallas and away from all the emotional turmoil. My friend Keith shut down, would not even have a normal conversation with me, but instead he quoted some obscure passage of Scripture day after day. The pain and struggles of Chris were palpable. Paul's depression and confusion elicited deep sympathy, if not sadness. Shad? He was a rather new Christian and was on the legalistic phase of his journey, which often means shut down the noise of inner emotions and just do the Christian thing. Denise felt alienated from her two roommates, was engaged to a sailor back home, and I became her big brother sounding board. Christine was tormented over being in love with a close friend of mine, which was not requited. And Sonia, the girl I would end up marrying six years later, well, that hit really close to home. Sonia and I met while on a ministry outreach to a juvenile detention center about 14 months earlier. She was 18 and I was 24. She and her roommates were part of my male circle of friends. We talked about life. We got to know each other. Conversation was smooth and easy for many months. Then, as I began to develop romantic feelings toward her, I felt the relaxed, enjoyable interaction between us disintegrate. From my perspective, I knew it was because I was scared out of my mind to fall in love. If I went with my feelings... I knew it could only end up in one of two ways, either marriage or in a painful breakup. And because I was aware that I had grown in the last two years to be a full-blown 16-year-old emotionally, I knew I was not in a place to pursue courtship toward marriage. So my plan of action was to not address the obviously uncomfortable emotions that were developing between the two of us. This young, now 19-year-old girl, girl could not take it any longer. So as we sat alone in the 1,500-seat auditorium after school one day, she popped the question. Do you have feelings for me? Now I was on the spot. Here I sat as the new Joe, the one who was committed to share honestly about how he actually felt or what he thought. It was my newfound policy to be dead honest with people, whether the answer is, I'm not going to answer your question, or, okay, as I look down into my heart, here's what I feel and what I think, but I won't lie about it. So, 
as we sat there in one of the most dramatic moments of each of our lives. I said to her, Yes, I do have feelings for you. In fact, I think I'm falling in love with you. But I don't plan to do anything about it. It sounds so terrible to write those words these many years later. But it was the truth. Feelings were one thing. And decisions concerning what to do about them were quite another. I was not nearly ready to be seriously dating toward engagement in marriage. And therefore to ignore that and just go along with our romantic feelings seemed like a suicide mission. The conversations she and I had and the emotional vacillations I went through over the final four weeks of that spring term were tormenting. To not pursue her was one of the most difficult decisions of my life. Seeds of Hope By the time of my graduation from CFNI in December of 1987, I still had no idea what it would mean for me to be in the ministry of the Word. But one thing was becoming clear to me. There were many incompetent people behind pulpits. After two years of having 66 different people from around the world come to CFNI and preach to the student body seven times in one week, I was overwhelmed with the reality that most of these people didn't know what they're talking about. Many of them were well-known and made a living at preaching and teaching, and yet their handling of the Bible was shaky at best. One preacher would emphasize something one week, and then the following preacher would contradict it the next. I was smart enough to know that they couldn't both be right. They could both be wrong, but they couldn't both be right. Two years of this drove me to the realization that I needed to learn how to read the Bible for myself. Having taken extracurricular classes on Introduction to New Testament Greek and Old Testament Hebrew revived my hope that getting at the intended meaning of the text of the Bible was possible. The seeds had been planted. Hope to actually understand the meaning of those black marks on the pages of the Bible was being restored. Chapter 5 the Academic Years, Life Bible College. During the last few weeks before my graduation from CFNI in December of 1987, the age-old question was thrown around the cafeteria. So what are you going to do with your life now? My answer seemed simple, but it was so unlike many. It didn't have the anticipation of great exploits for God. I would answer what seemed obvious. I'm going to move back to Southern California, find a job, find a place to live, be involved in my local church, and continue to love God. Getting strange looks from people didn't bother me because that was as far as I could see into the future, and that is exactly what I did. After being back in California for six months working in construction and house painting, a foreign and, from my religious background, 
taboo thought came into my mind. Enroll in a four-year college and major in biblical studies. Up to that moment, the idea of pursuing further formal education had never crossed my mind. Ever since I became a Christian, formal education, particularly in biblical and theological studies, was spoken against as detrimental to the soul. It was as if a theological education was a sign of a person's lack of spirituality and giftedness to preach. The implicit doctrine within my local church and the theological camp that I belonged to was, true ministry is not the anointing with education and good exegetical skills, but it is the anointing instead of education and good common sense interpretive skills. One of the main leaders and teachers that I listened to in the early 1980s would often say, Ph.D. stands for post-hole digger. Added to this is the fact that I came from a family background of no one having a college degree, including all four grandparents, my parents, or any of my six siblings. This anti-intellectualism was so spoon-fed to me in my first five years as a Christian that when I found out that a pastor actually had a bachelor's degree in biblical studies, or a master's degree from a theological seminary, I would wonder how they got so messed up as to think that a person could actually grow spiritually and benefit others in ministry by means of a higher education. The higher the degree you had in biblical, Christian, or theological studies, the more I doubted whether you were truly born again. But having had most of my earlier theological system crumble beneath me, I was beginning to see that these super-spiritual, uninformed, and immature ideas about higher education also needed to fall. Since that day when I sensed a calling to the ministry of the Word, I experienced great tension. I would sit and listen to powerful, persuasive preaching and wonder at the gift of the Spirit that the speaker must have in order to get out of this or that passage of Scripture the meaning that he preached so powerfully. I would think to myself, I must not be called to preach because I have no idea how to get hidden meanings out of the text that are not plainly there on the page. It was despairing at times. But by the end of my years at CFNI, I was becoming convinced that this so-called anointing where preachers would charismatically say things that were not clearly representative of the text of Scripture was not a Holy Spirit anointing. Instead, it was dangerous foolishness from which one should flee. Much of my Christian culture was engulfed in experientialism. I even heard preachers say that the Word of God is not on the surface of the page, but deep down, underneath, and you need the Holy Spirit to tell you what it means. Because of this unbiblical doctrine of the Word, and of Christian leadership, it is no wonder that in these circles authority often seemed to be rooted in the most dominant personalities. The evidence that they were right was rooted in their persuasiveness of telling you that they were right, telling you that the Holy Spirit spoke to them. There was no objective standard like the plain meaning of Scripture that ruled as arbiter and judge over what is true or not. They were the Lord's anointed, and they told you so. And woe to you if you did not follow. By the end of my years at CFNI, I was coming to the realization that truth does not reside in personalities, in giftings to preach, 
or to publicly communicate, but it resides in the Scripture. I was becoming aware that I needed to learn how to be honest with the Scripture in its context. I needed to be able to read the Bible in its original languages. I needed to humble myself and to learn from the wisdom of the ages what had transpired in church history and theological debates. I was becoming aware that if God were ever to entrust me with a teaching or pastoral preaching ministry, I would need to know what I was talking about, how I got there, and how to point outside of myself to the Scripture as the objective standard for all doctrine. This is what persuaded me to pursue my bachelor's degree in biblical studies, especially in order to learn the original languages. I enrolled at Life Bible College, now Life Pacific College, for the fall semester of 1988. My philosophy of higher education was, I pay people to make me do that which I want to do, but I know I would not do it unless I paid them to make me do it. Over the next three years, I experienced intense excitement as I was learning to think and write more clearly. The spiritual intoxication of sitting in Larry Powers' New Testament theology class in the fall of 1989 was exhilarating. Reading George E. Ladd's A Theology of the New Testament was like walking into a wardrobe and coming out into a new land of clarity concerning the New Testament Gospels and Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God. During my undergraduate education, all other classes and books paled in comparison to Dr. Ladd's A Theology of the New Testament and my biblical language studies. Ladd opened my eyes to the already, not yet, tension of the kingdom of God spoken about throughout the ministry of Jesus. There's an old saying that goes like this, The more you learn, the more you realize what you don't know. That was happening to me big time during my college years. The flame was being fanned for learning church history, theological history, Western civilization, systematic theology, biblical theology, and above all, New Testament Greek and Old Testament Hebrew morphology. I felt like one of the luckiest men in the world because from the ages of 27 through 29, I was pursuing my undergraduate degree in subjects for which I had a deep passion. If you catch a fish for a man, you feed him for a day. But if you teach him to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. That old saying was ringing true of my own experience as a biblical language minor. The most important classes I took at life were Greek 1, Greek 2, Greek diagramming, Greek arcing, called discourse analysis, Greek reading, 1 Peter in Greek, Hebrew 1, Hebrew 2, and Hebrew 3. I was learning to read the Bible in its original languages and to grapple with words, prepositions, paragraphs, and books of the Bible in their original context. As a child, when diagramming sentences was taught in class, all I could think about was recess. Now, in my late 20s, finding the main verb in the Greek New Testament, then its subject, its object, its indirect object, its prepositional phrases, and all its other modifiers, and thinking through their relationship to one another was sheer joy to me. 
The semester on Greek diagramming led into the next semester on discourse analysis. I was learning a system called arcing that was developed by a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary named Daniel Fuller. Arcing is a method of putting on paper one's analysis of paragraphs, chapters, books of the Bible, or any text for that matter. Having been coached in this discipline was extremely important for me and for what has become my ministry of preaching. Arcing is a tool for following and documenting the flow of thought in the biblical text. Paragraphs are made up of propositions, which are assertions or statements that affirm or deny something. These propositions have a verb and a subject, and other words which surround them. Arcing involves dividing the text into its propositions and then noting the logical relationships between them. It is basically, slow down and use common sense as you read the Bible. People speak and write in order to communicate meaning. That meaning passes from one mind to another through words, whether spoken or written. The way meaning works is that words fit together in order to construct a proposition. And the way you get at the meaning of a proposition is with sentence diagramming. Diagramming sentences is something everyone reading this page does intuitively. You read the words and quickly decide their relationship to the other words around them. For example, how does this prepositional phrase relate to the verb? Is the subject doing the action of the verb, or is the verb being done to the subject? Your mind does this even though you may not use or understand the grammatical terms. With simple stuff like a text message from my wife saying, Stop by Ralph's and pick up two gallons of milk. I know almost immediately the meaning without consciously thinking about grammatical terms like imperative move, stop by Ralph's, subject, object, or tense. Why is that? Well, the answer is because since I was born, I have been inundated with the English language. My mind automatically made the grammatical connections that my wife put together in order to communicate from her mind to my mind what she wanted me to do. But for much harder text, like Aristotle's Ethics or Paul's Epistle to the Romans, it takes the hard work of thinking. It demands slowing down and asking how each word or phrase relates to the other words and phrases around it. This is very important in order to understand Aristotle's or Paul's meaning by the words they used. Arking asks of paragraphs what sentence diagramming asks of propositions. Diagramming says, Mr. Proposition, how do all your words relate to each other in order to make this one meaningful statement? Arking says, Okay, you bunch of propositions, how do you relate to each other in order to make that one larger point of the paragraph? In a paragraph, there may be three or seven or twenty propositions. Propositions relate to each other with logical connections that are either explicit or implicit. The logical flow of propositions makes up one cohesive paragraph which communicates a larger main point from the many propositions. For example, the sentence, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for 
it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, in Romans 1.16, has two propositions. 16a, I am not ashamed of the gospel. 16b, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. After dividing the text into its propositions, the next step is to record the relationship between them. There are about 16 different logical relationships that are possible. In this case, the for indicates that 16b is the ground of 16a. In other words, the reason Paul is not ashamed of the gospel is because it is the power of God. After writing each proposition on a separate line, I then draw a line across the top and put an arc, that is, a half circle, over each proposition. There are shorthand symbols for each possible logical connection between propositions. For example, ground equals G, purpose equals end, conditional equals if slash then, temporal equals T. These symbols are placed in each arc or between arcs in order to denote the relationship of one statement to the others around it. I know the last few paragraphs were technical and elusive to most readers and hearers, but the rub is that this method of biblical exegesis causes me to slow down and force myself to see things in the text that I might not see if I did not ask the question, how do these eight propositions relate to each other? This method called arcing that I began to learn in Bible college has become indispensable to me. It helps me rethink the biblical author's thoughts after him. During my undergraduate years, I was learning how to read the Bible for myself. My biblical language studies with this common sense exegetical method were expanding my confidence that I could come to my own conclusions about the meaning on the pages of Scripture. Church Life From the time I returned home from Dallas and began my academic studies, I was becoming more and more aware of the cultural and theological differences between me and my local church. I was feeling progressively distant, and I sensed that my time was limited at Jubilee Fellowship. But I was way too busy with school and working to consider shopping for a new church, so I decided during my junior year that my college graduation would be the time to leave the only church I had been a member of for ten years. This new church search would eventually coincide with Sonia moving from Dallas to Los Angeles right after my graduation. Then together we could decide on a new church home. Sonia after two years of no contact, Sonia and I reconnected as friends at my sister's graduation from Christ for the Nations Institute in May of 1989. Over the next year, we would talk as good friends on the phone once every two months. None of the uncomfortable girl-boy emotional feelings that once hindered our communication was present anymore. We were both more mature than a few years before. During that junior year of college, I felt myself slowly 
and deliberately falling in love with her, and I welcomed it. This time, if things continued to develop in our relationship, I planned to do something about it. It was during the summer of 1990 when she came to California for vacation that our intentions and feelings came out into the open. So my senior year at Life Bible College consisted of loving school, anticipating leaving the only church to which I had ever belonged as a Christian, and falling more and more in love with that God-centered young woman whom I would eventually marry in July of 1993. Chapter 6, The Academic Years, Fuller Theological Seminary As graduation approached, I was struck with a deep sense that my education had only just begun. So after earning my bachelor's degree, two weeks later, in June of 1991, I began working on my Master of Arts degree in Theology at Fuller Theological Seminary. After finishing the summer term, I was off to Dallas to move Sonia to Los Angeles so we could end the long-distance relationship we had been developing over the previous year. She moved in with my parents and sister, found a job as a legal secretary, and we settled on a home church together. Now that I was at Fuller Theological Seminary, I was excited about the prospect of refining my arcing skills by being coached by Daniel Fuller himself. I waited until the winter quarter of 1992 when Dr. Fuller was scheduled to teach hermeneutics, the science of how to interpret the Bible, in order to take arcing from the horse's mouth. I yearned to be pushed rigorously to read the Bible carefully, to diagram its sentences, delineate its propositions, and to sketch them out in Dr. Fuller's method called arcing. To be forced to think hard about terms, the meaning of propositions and their relationships to one another, and then how those larger units, called paragraphs, relate to each other, was exhilarating to me. In most of my classes at Fuller Seminary, I was fairly quiet and rarely asked questions, either during or after class. But in Dr. Fuller's class, my hand would constantly shoot up. I would sit with him for 30 minutes to an hour after almost every class grilling him on the subject of biblical exegesis. For example, Dr. Fuller, could you look at my arc of Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 14 and tell me what you think about the way I see this passage? Why am I wrong? Okay, I hear you, but what about this? Those times of personal coaching and inductive Bible study are bearing fruit 23 years later. It was in Dr. Fuller's hermeneutics class that I was introduced to Mortimer Adler's How to Read a Book, published in 1939 and still in print today. This was essentially Dr. Fuller's hermeneutics textbook. The discipline of arcing was his way of putting Adler into practice and showing the results on paper. We had to know chapters 8 through 12 cold. Adler works from the basic common sense premise that meaning from one mind to another transfers through the vehicle of words. To grasp the meaning of one's words takes work. One must labor to come to terms with the author. 
In other words, one must work in understanding what an author meant by the significant words or phrases he used. Adler put it this way, quote, If the author uses a word in one meaning, and the reader reads it in another, words have passed between them, but they have not come to terms. Where there is unresolved ambiguity in communication, there is no communication, or at best, communication must be incomplete. For the communication to be successfully completed, therefore, it is necessary for the two parties to use the same words with the same meanings. In short, to come to terms. End quote. We're tempted to say to what Adler just wrote, No, duh. But in reality, this is where communication breaks down all the time. In marriages, between friends, in a casual conversation after church, and, most sadly of all, by preachers dealing lightly with Paul's, or Jesus's, or Peter's words. It is a serious thing to stand up in front of people, open the Bible, and teach a passage in a way that implies that the words mean something that the human author never intended when he wrote them. We should do unto others as we would have them do unto us. Quote from John Piper in his book, Think. We all want to be understood for what we intend to say. No speaker or writer wants to be misunderstood. Therefore, we should work hard to understand what an author intends to communicate. I know that when I speak or write, I have something that I would like others to grasp. I get frustrated when they construe meaning that I never intended. It may be my fault for not communicating clearly, or it may be their fault for interpreting poorly. It takes work to communicate clearly, and it takes work to listen or to read well. Successful interpretation happens when the meaning that the author intended is equal to the meaning the reader construes from the words. After having come to terms with the author, Adler says we are to move on to determining the author's message. One does this by finding the propositions first and then understanding how the propositions fit together in larger units of thought. Dr. Fuller's system of arcing is a method of recording on paper the relationships between propositions. At the end of my CFNI years, I had come to realize that much of Christianity and preaching seemed to be relative. The Bible was used as a wax nose for the preacher to create his own meaning from the text. As a result, the original meaning in the passage seemed to be practically unimportant. But because of Dan Fuller, the despair I was feeling a few years earlier was being turned into joyful anticipation every time I picked up the Bible. Knowing that Moses or John or Paul delivered their intended meaning on the pages of Scripture opened up a door of discovery that has not ceased to this day. Being coached by Dan Fuller in Arkin was causing my competence and confidence that what I understood Paul to be saying in a particular text is what he intended me to understand by the words, grammar, and logical connections he used. 
It's impossible to overestimate the importance of my biblical language studies and Dan Fuller's system of arcing upon my life, thinking, and ultimately, my theology. The Crisis of 1993 After two years at Christ for the Nations Institute, three years at Life Bible College, and over a year and a half at Fuller Theological Seminary, my entire educational experience was nothing short of thrilling, energizing, and fulfilling. Then, by the end of the winter quarter of 1993, the crisis hit. For the first time in six and a half years of higher education, I began to become disillusioned and burned out. After seven quarters at Fuller Seminary, taking classes in Advanced Greek, Greek Reading, Exegesis, three quarters of Theological History, three quarters of Systematic Theology, some courses in Leadership Training, New Testament, Old Testament, Philosophy, Ethics, and Pastoral Counseling, I was beginning to wonder how it all really mattered in real life, in the place where it is supposed to matter the most the local church. It felt like my overall theological education had no cohesion to it. There was no unifying reality around which the whole Bible turned. The disconnect between the various academic disciplines within the seminary was palpable. What I mean is this. The philosophy department seemed to have no connection to the systematic theology department. The systematic guys were in a whole different world than the biblical studies guys. And the biblical studies department was totally disconnected from the historical theology department. I was sensing a huge disconnect between academics and church life. I loved the life of the mind, but everything about my seminary education seemed segregated. I was only seeing pieces Exegetical skills were over here. Theological debates in the history of the church were over there. And pastoral counseling classes that were filled with secular psychological theories were in the far corner. Church growth techniques built on business principles that boiled down to give the unchurched what they feel they want were in a world of their own. There was no unity that tied these disciplines together. I was finally feeling exasperated. As I contemplated finishing my master's degree over the next year and a half, the thrill of study and thinking and learning didn't seem to have much to do with pastoral ministry and the life of the church. And then a divine appointment saved my education. This feeling of unsettledness coincided with a problem concerning my class schedule for the upcoming spring quarter of 1993. My particular master's program was fairly rigid in its requirements, and for the spring quarter, only two classes appeared to fit the requirements I needed. They were the Book of Galatians, which would fulfill one of my New Testament classes, and Gospel and Law, which would fulfill a biblical theology course. And both of them were to be taught by Daniel Fuller every Tuesday and Thursday. Up to this point, I had never planned nor desired to take Dr. Fuller for any other classes. 
He was powerfully instrumental in coaching me in Greek exegetical skills and arcing, but I had no idea about his theology. In fact, I had been scared off by other students who told me that his theology was kind of screwy. I allowed those comments to influence me into never considering taking him for anything outside of hermeneutics. But a year later, I was stuck with a scheduling problem. So, I knocked on Daniel Fuller's office door right before the spring quarter of 1993. I sat down in his office and asked him, If I take you for these two classes, what will you be teaching me? After a two-hour conversation, in the midst of his office strewn with boxes of books all over the floor, there was nothing that was going to keep me away from these two classes. Even if I didn't need those two classes in order to fulfill requirements for my degree, I would have spent the money and taken them anyway. So there I sat, every Tuesday and Thursday morning from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. in Dr. Fuller's Galatians course. Then between classes, I would go to the library, work through the Greek text on the next section of Galatians, arc the passage, and discuss my arcs with Dr. Fuller after each class. Then, from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m., I was having my theological paradigms blown up and reconstructed in his Gospel and Law class. The year 1993 really means something to me. Not just because it was one of the greatest moments of my life as my wife and I exchanged our wedding vows, but because it was the time that God, through the pages of Scripture, got really huge in my mind. His self-revelation was sitting there on the pages of the Bible for thousands of years. But with the help of Dan Fuller, my man-centered way of reading was turned upside down. All of a sudden, I could take the sentences in the Bible at face value. I no longer had to read clear statements in Romans and say to myself, Well, I know it says that, but we all know it can't mean that. Instead, for the first time in my life, I was beginning to see God for who He really is. All over the Bible, I was confronted with truths about God and His ways that didn't fit into my preconceived ideas. Like most people who come to faith in Christ, I assumed that we creatures were at the center of existence. My presupposition was, look at humanity, and you see God. God was made into our image. If I were God, I would not be this way. Therefore, God cannot be that way. God had truly saved me twelve years earlier. I was born again by the Holy Spirit. I knew most of Paul's epistles by memory. I knew every significant Bible character. I knew that the one true God exists in three eternal persons. I understood that He knew everything and could do anything He so chose to do. But during 1993... The overwhelming subject that stunned me was the subject of God, of God Himself. The three-pronged paradigm-shifting truths that Dan Fuller led me through were, one, the motivation for obedience in the Christian life is the obedience that springs from a heart of faith in God's promises. Two, contemplation on the Holy Trinity. 
3. God is absolutely sovereign over all things, including the salvation of our souls. The Obedience of Faith The seeds were being planted in Dr. Fuller's Gospel and Law class. The lights were going on. What I always knew by intuition to be true about the essence of saving faith was being biblically confirmed day by day. It was my experience that being plucked out of darkness and indwelt by the Holy Spirit caused an overwhelming passion to look to God through Christ for real, long-lasting happiness. As the Apostle Peter put it, According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with the joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. 1 Peter 1, 3-5 and verse 8. The questions that Dr. Fuller confronted me with in his Gospel and Law and Galatians courses were this. What is the nature of that faith? And how does it relate to obedience in the Christian life? As a new Christian, it seemed natural that those two, faith and obedience, go hand in glove. Then Christian traditions crept in slowly and separated them. I came to Christ for the joy He offered, the peace He promised, and the deliverance from wrath He secured. The first two chapters of this autobiography demonstrate that that was my experience. There was a real sense in which I came to Christ for me. I came for my happiness, eternally. That was my motivation. My Christian experience had been a Holy Spirit-driven desire for true happiness. My attitude toward the Lord was, tell me what to do. He would say in the scriptures, praise me, follow me, obey me, delight yourself in the Lord. I would respond, okay, you got it. The internal dialogue of my early years as a Christian was clear. Why do you read the Bible, Joe? Why do you pray? Why do you give God the first fruits of your income? Why do you battle the flesh and press into fellowship with God in order to bear the fruit of the Spirit? Why do you work to keep yourself away from sexual sin? The answer was, because I want to be happy. Ever since my new birth, that seemed natural. But much of Christian theology was saying, Just obey. Your desires don't matter. Serve God because, well, that's just what you're supposed to do. This was said in a way that seemed to be disconnected from faith, which would mean that I was to live the Christian life separated from my desire to be happy. It was in Dr. Fuller's Gospel and Law class that I began to see that the inclination to seek real, long-lasting happiness in God and His promises is the foundational way we are to live to the glory of God. 
It was becoming clear that not only is that the natural inclination of born-again people, but it is blatantly biblical. Sometimes a sentence or a paragraph changes a person's life. That was true of my experience in Dan Fuller's class in 1993 when we were commanded to read a paragraph by Blaise Pascal. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it, that is war, is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will of man never takes the least step but to this object, seeking his happiness. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. There it was, a paragraph by a 17th century mathematician. Dr. Fuller would challenge us to prove Pascal wrong, and every scenario I could come up with in trying to show that Pascal was wrong didn't work. Dan Fuller, through Blaise Pascal, had me pinned to the mat. And it was reviving my joy in God and my hope that all my learning really did have to do with everyday life of the average person. The more I thought about it, the more Pascal's statement seemed self-evident. And that led to examining text after text in the Bible that commands us to pursue our own happiness in God. This was summarized by a couple of paragraphs that Dan Fuller put before us from C.S. Lewis's sermon called The Weight of Glory. Lewis writes, If you asked twenty good men today what they thought the highest of the virtues, nineteen of them would reply, Unselfishness! But if you asked almost any of the great Christians of old, he would have replied, Love. You see what has happened? A negative term has been substituted for a positive, And this is of more than just philological importance. The negative ideal of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion not primarily of securing good things for others, but of going without them ourselves as if our abstinence and not their happiness was the important point. I don't think this is the Christian virtue of love. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find, if we do so, contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good earnestly and to earnestly hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Immanuel Kant and the Stoics, and it has no part to do with the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord Jesus finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, 
when all the while infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. End quote. Twelve years into my Christianity, I was joyfully shocked that Blaise Pascal, C.S. Lewis, and my professor were all saying, you can take the Bible at face value when it implies that we do not seek true happiness nearly enough, and usually we seek it in all the wrong places. They were blatantly saying that the underlying reason we should pursue obeying God is for our own joy in God. It was becoming clear that pursuing holiness and obeying God's word to love the Lord with all your heart and love your neighbor as you love yourself were to be pursued because of the promises of our happiness in God. Our obedience to biblical commands such as meditate on His Word day and night and don't forsake the gathering of the local church is not to be separated from our pursuit of joy. They are one with our pursuit of joy. Dan Fuller drove this home to me with his distinction between the obedience of an employee to an employer versus a patient's obedience to his doctor. In other words, is Christian obedience to be modeled after the fulfilling of a job description in order to be recompensed with a paycheck that we earned? Or is it to be modeled after our obedience to a doctor's prescription for our good? At the core of legalism, which is a sinful approach to God, is the idea that God is needy. He's a needy employer who hires us to do something for Him, and as a result, He owes us what we earned. But God is never in need of what we can supply Him. For from Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Romans 11.36 Instead, all of God's commands are like a physician's prescription for our health, for our eternal happiness. We go to the pharmacy to get our prescriptions filled, not because we're doing something to benefit the doctor. We don't do it for him. We do it because his command, take these pills for five days, is his benefiting us. It is for our good. He works for us, not we for him. As Isaiah 64, 4 says, From of old, no one is heard or perceived by ear, no eye has seen a God beside you who works for those who wait for Him. The nature of faith is trusting God as the great physician who commands us for our real, everlasting good. So faith looks to God's promises in Scripture and it acts in obedience to commands which are there for our true and ultimate happiness. That obedience is called the obedience of faith. Hebrews 11.6 puts it this way. 
And without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that God exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. And the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. I was coming to see that the very essence of saving faith was trusting God's commands and promises for our true and everlasting satisfaction. The temporal pleasures of sin are stripped of their allurement to the extent we devour and believe all the promises of God to be there for us, secured by His Son, Christ Jesus. The Debate What Dr. Fuller had been teaching me grabbed a hold of one of his students twenty years earlier, named John Piper. It was he who popularized it in his 1986 book titled, Desiring God, Meditations of a Christian Hedonist. I had not yet read this book. That would happen two months later on my honeymoon. Toward the end of the spring quarter of 1993, Dr. Fuller kept mentioning a debate he was in the process of organizing between John Piper and another professor of mine named Richard Mao, who was about to become the next president of Fuller Theological Seminary. Dan Fuller really wanted this debate to happen because Richard Mao, in his book titled The God Who Commands, had a chapter on John Piper's book. In this chapter, Mao criticized Piper for his theology of Christian hedonism. But his criticism was not against anything for which Piper actually contended. To have read Piper's book and then Mao's chapter made it clear that Mao did not actually read Piper's book. Piper was already scheduled to come to California for the annual Meeting of the Ark. The Meeting of the Ark was a week-long gathering of former students of Dr. Fuller's who cherished his method of arcing. They would work through passages of Scripture together and present papers on different topics in order to have lively discussions. In the weeks preceding the showdown, Dr. Fuller would tell us in class, This is going to be a no-holds-barred fight to the death, a take-no-prisoners debate. In preparation for the debate, Piper wrote a response to Mao's chapter so that all of us attendees and Mao himself could read it and be ready for the debate. On that weekday morning in June, about 30 of us gathered in Dan Fuller's living room to listen to Piper and Mao go at it. I came away stunned at how unprepared Dr. Mao was and how logical and biblical Piper was. Dr. Mao did apologize for misrepresenting Piper in print, and he admitted he never read the book. I left the house after shaking Piper's hand, thinking, as soon as the quarter ends, I have to read Desiring God with a fine-tooth comb. Desiring God One of the biggest, most important, and happiest days of my life happened in the midst of my theological Copernican revolution. I married the girl of my dreams. Sonia Duke finally became Sonia LeMay on July 24, 1993. 
with my bride in one hand and the book desiring God in the other, we were off to Lake Tahoe for our honeymoon. On the deck of a cabin in the woods, I devoured each page and would often stop and say, Honey, come here, listen to this. Dan Fuller had a steel trap for a mind. He loved to argue and debate with students in order to get them to think. He hated lecturing, but loved the Socratic method of teaching. I interacted with many students who found him hard to understand. As Dr. Fuller used to say to me in private, I don't have the preaching gift my father had. I'm an egghead. I'm a bookworm. It seemed to be only the desperately hungry students that gleaned the treasures he had to give. May there be more eggheads and bookworms like him. But it is left to others, like John Piper, who have an extraordinary gift to place truth and arguments on paper in a way that is captivating and exhilarating to read. Piper paid tribute to Dr. Fuller in his preface to Desiring God, saying, quote, As with almost everything I do, the influence of Daniel P. Fuller pervades. It was in his class in 1968 where the seminal discoveries were made. I would be happy to view this book as a little tugboat pulling his unity of the Bible like a large, great cargo vessel out of the harbor of his mind into the ocean of public thought. End quote. Twenty-eight years later, it is clear that, by God's grace, Piper was successful in that endeavor. The first words that I read in Piper's introduction resonated with every biblical and fiber that was spiritual within my being. Quote, You might turn the world on its head by changing one word in your creed. The old tradition says, The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And? Like ham and eggs? Sometimes you glorify God and sometimes you enjoy Him? The overriding concern of this book is that all of life, God be glorified the way He Himself has appointed. And to that end, this book aims to persuade you that the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. Desiring God, pages 17 and 18. Piper goes on to say that in his first quarter at Fuller Theological Seminary in 1968 is where, quote, he was converted to Christian hedonism. He writes, In a matter of weeks, I came to see that it is unbiblical and arrogant to try to worship God for any other reason than the pleasure to be had in Him. End quote. That spring quarter under Dan Fuller, and devouring the same truths in the creative and poetic way Piper put them in Desiring God, caused me to feel like I had been born again, again. The exegetical, theological, and spiritual convergence going on inside of me was causing an internal revival of worship and adoration of my Savior.
The remainder of this book is continued in part two of the audio recording.